please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture today is from Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word. We invite you to keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10. Let's pray together as we open this word. Father, as we listen to these words of our Savior this morning, as he talks about marriage and divorce, I pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would help us to humbly receive these words, to be guided and instructed by them, but also, Lord, to see our need of you in what Jesus says here. I pray that you would use this passage uh, to drive us to the arms of your Son, And I ask that you would do all of this in his name. Amen. In 1913, the British explorer Ernest Shackleton was preparing for a journey to the most remote and dangerous place on the entire globe. He planned to sail to Antarctica and then to travel across the continent with dog sleds to meet a ship that was waiting for him on the other side. It had never been done before. People had made it to the South Pole, so they knew how inhospitable Antarctica was and how dangerous this journey would be. Shackleton would have to face lethal conditions every single day of the journey. Any mistake could cost him his life or the life of a crew member. So he needed sailors who were going to go with him, who were not only experienced, but could stand up to the physical and mental challenges and demands that he knew would come. If they went into it thinking that this was going to be a leisure cruise, they wouldn't last. They would crumble. So he set out to hire the best men for the job, men who knew what to expect. Because signing on to be a part of Shackleton's crew meant saying goodbye to wives and children for months, maybe years, maybe forever. It would push them to the very limits and probably beyond. It might cost them everything. And as the story goes, Shackleton put an ad in a London paper that says, man wanted for hazardous journey to the South Pole. 
Small wages, bitter cold, and long months of complete darkness and constant danger. Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. Most historians think that that part of the story is a little bit embellished, that Shackleton never actually put that ad in the paper, but the essence of it is certainly true. It was a life-threatening journey, something physically demanding, mentally exhausting, an attempt to do something that no one had ever done before, and the sailors who were signing on needed to know that going in, or they would wither when things eventually went wrong. In some ways, that is the picture of the Christian life. Throughout his ministry, Jesus has warned the disciples that following him would be difficult and unsafe, that it would cost them their safety and eventually their very lives. It is not a call to a leisure cruise. It was a call to radical self-sacrifice, humility, physical danger, mental exhaustion, and constant vigilance in the pursuit of an unattainably high goal of righteousness. If Jesus had put an ad in the paper, it might have said, men and women wanted for hazardous, lifelong journey. No wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, and constant danger are likely. Safe return home, impossible. Rejection and dishonor in the eyes of the world all but assured. The problem is that at this point in Mark's gospel, the disciples, who are with Jesus, don't understand that at all. Here in chapter 10, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, where he will willingly give himself into the hands of violent accusers who will hang him on a cross. In just a few weeks, Jesus will be in a tomb, and he has told his disciples this in plain language, that this is exactly what's going to happen, but they cannot comprehend it. They still think that Jesus is destined for greatness, for political and social triumph, and that by following him, they are destined for greatness too. And because they think that, they spend their time arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest and who deserves to have the seats of honor in Jesus' kingdom. They think that this is a leisure cruise, that Jesus is their ticket to prosperity and comfort, the lives they've dreamed of. So on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus takes some time to disabuse them of that notion, to explain that being his disciple is a call to icy waters and long, dark nights, and that following him is really more about losing yourself than ending up in the seat of honor. It is about humbling yourself for the good of others more than it is about using them to prop yourself up, because that is what Christ himself has come to do. So the gospel itself is wrapped up in what Jesus is trying to get through to the disciples in this passage in this section of the book. And as they make a stopover in Judea, when Jesus is asked a question about divorce, he uses the moment to show the disciples something about the life that they've been called to and the way that that comes to bear on how they think about marriage. Mark tells us that Jesus left Galilee and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. It's a wilderness on the eastern side of the Jordan River and far outside the area where most of Jesus' ministry has taken place. But despite that remote location, Jesus' fame is evident to us. People flock to him. They come seeking him, as they have so often in this story. People who want help, who are looking for answers, who need to know if the rumors that they've heard about this man from Nazareth are true. 
Crowds gathered to him, and he paused his journey to Jerusalem to teach them, because he is patient. He knows that his time is short, but he gives what little of it he has to these people who are earnestly seeking him. But then, in this scene, alongside the crowd, another group comes forward. Mark says that Pharisees came up, and in order, in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees are a group of religious leaders who prided themselves on strict adherence to the Mosaic law and swift condemnation of those that they considered to be in violation of it. So they were kind of like the self-appointed sheriffs of people's religious practice who spent their time looking down on pretty much everyone else. They considered Jesus a blasphemer and a rebel who was leading people astray, and they wanted him silenced by any means necessary. So when they come to test Jesus, it is not a genuine search for truth, but a carefully designed trap. They want to bait him into saying something that will get him in trouble. At the time, in the first century, there is an energetic nationwide debate happening on the topic of divorce. Just like it is in our modern context, divorce was common, and there were lots of opinions about it. And the question, the question in first century Judea hung on how to interpret just a few verses from the Old Testament, which are found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. In fact, those few verses are the only place in the whole Old Testament to give any instruction on the topic of divorce. It says that a man can initiate a divorce if his wife finds no favor in his eyes because he has found in her some indecency. In Moses' day, when that law was given, that was a pretty remarkable statement. For Israel's neighbors who considered wives property of their husbands, the idea that a man needed to justify a divorce was a bizarre concept. For them, it would be as strange as demanding that you get permission to replace an old appliance. But in Israel, it would not be this way. In Israel, there needed to be a sufficient reason for the parting of a husband and wife, and that she was entitled to a certificate of divorce that would enable her to remarry so that she would not be vulnerable. But there was great debate over what Deuteronomy means when it says that divorce is permissible in cases of indecency. In Jesus' day, so by the first century, several, several centuries after that law was given, two basic schools of thought had emerged. One group argued that divorce was only an option if a wife had been unfaithful. Otherwise, they argued, divorce not permitted in the law. But the other view about divorce in Jesus' day was that a husband could divorce his wife for practically any reason. One rabbi explains that a man can send his wife away for overcooking his dinner or even for the simple reason that he finds another, another woman more favorable. In the first century, that is how most people understood the rules about divorce. Most Jewish men in Jesus' day thought that Deuteronomy 24 was a license to cast their wives aside without restraint. And the Pharisees asked Jesus this question about divorce, to trap him, because they either want him to alienate a bunch of his followers by giving an answer that they will disagree with, 
or because they are trying to lure him into arguing against the Mosaic law in some way so that they can accuse him. But there's probably one other thing happening here. The reason I think that they asked Jesus this specific question is because they know that this topic has gotten people in real trouble in the past. Back in chapter 6, if you remember, we read about how John the Baptist was imprisoned and then eventually executed because he had spoken out on this topic, specifically against King Herod's divorce and remarriage. It was a national scandal when it became known that King Herod was leaving his wife to marry his sister-in-law, his brother's wife. John had spoken publicly about how these things dishonored God. He rejected Herod's actions, and he had paid for his opinion with his life. And the Pharisees wonder if they can lead Jesus to say something that will get him into that kind of trouble. Now, the time is perfect for them to spring their trap because Mark tells us that this conversation takes place in Judea, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which is exactly where John the Baptist had lived and taught and given his thoughts on divorce and then been arrested. The Pharisees know that Jesus is in the jurisdiction of Herod, And that if they can bait Jesus into saying something critical of Herod's second marriage, they have a a chance to silence him forever. So the scene is set. The trap is laid. And all that is left is for Jesus to walk into it, to choose a side in this debate. But Jesus is not fooled. He knows exactly what they're doing. He knows what is in their hearts. But he also sees this as an opportunity to teach his people, to teach his disciples something about this new life that he is calling them to. He responds to their question with a question of his own, pressing them to recite the relevant passage from Deuteronomy 24, and they summarize it by saying, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. They're still hoping that Jesus is going to say something here to get himself in trouble. They give just vague enough an answer that they're leaving the trap set. They assume that he will choose a side in the debate about just how to answer the question of indecency. But Jesus surprises them and says, it is because of your hardness of heart that Moses wrote you this commandment. Jesus is saying that this part of the law does not reflect God's will, but that it is a concession that is necessary because people could not possibly fulfill God's will. But from the beginning of creation, Jesus says, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus does not give them the answer that they were expecting. He does not dwell on Deuteronomy 24, and in fact, he just leaps right over it and instead goes back to the very beginning, quoting from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He is saying this, Genesis 1 and 2, is the way things are supposed to be. Marriage was designed by God to be a unique bond, categorically different from every other relationship in our lives. When God made humanity, he made a man and a woman. He didn't make them grandparents. He didn't make them neighbors. He didn't make a boss and an employee or friends. He made a marriage. And there's something significant about the fact that all of those other types of relationship, which 
the Bible affirms are important. They are significant, but they came later because God thinks about marriage differently than all of those other ways that human beings relate to one another. There is no friendship, no business partnership, not even the relationship that exists between parents and their children, nothing that equals what Jesus describes here, which is why Jesus says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, because in marriage, God makes two people one. The math here doesn't make sense apart from God doing something. One plus one equals one. So marriage in God's eyes and his design for it is different than any other kind of relationship. And he does this for an important reason, so that the world will glimpse something about God's own nature and the union that exists, or rather in the union that exists between a husband and wife. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul quotes from the very same part of Genesis that Jesus did. He says, therefore a man shall hold fast to his father or shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Same verse Jesus quoted. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In marriage, husbands and wives love one another in a way that images the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church that he laid down his life to save. So God has designed marriage from the very beginning to be a stage on which the glorious, redemptive story of the gospel is put on display. The problem in first century Judea and in the world today is that we think of marriage differently than God does. We think of it in terms of return on investment. That marriage is good as long as we're getting more from it than it costs us. It's the cultural water that we swim in, and it's hard for us to break free from this way of thinking. It's hard for us to think about marriage the way that God does, rather than thinking that as the benefits of it start to fall off and the costs start to climb, the best thing to do is simply to walk away from it. That is how we're trained to think about marriage from the world around us, and it is often celebrated. In an article that I read this week, at, on the website marriage.com of all places, the author acknowledged that divorce is a difficult thing, but also says that it is a pathway to personal growth, emotional well-being, independence, and even somehow positive role modeling for children. And just like it was in Jesus's day, it is relatively easy for us to do it. But when he, asks, when he is asked about his thoughts on the divorce debate, Jesus answers the Pharisees not by looking at Deuteronomy 24 to correct them in their thinking, but by looking at Genesis 1 and 2 to correct their thinking, to the design and divine purpose of marriage. He says, yes, Deuteronomy 24 allows for divorce. That is true. But that law was given because humanity, in our hardness of heart, could not uphold what was actually God's will. It's not the way that things are supposed to be. So Deuteronomy 24 is an accommodation that is necessary because of human folly. It's like the bumpers that kids use when they go bowling. Have you ever used, or, or I don't know, maybe some of you use the bumpers when you go bowling. I need the bumpers. If there are no bumpers, then kids throw gutter balls pretty much every time. 
So somebody invented these rails that they can fold up, and they block the gutter and ensure that at least some pins are going to get knocked down. It's not the way that the game was designed to work. It is certainly not the best version of bowling. There's no professional bowling league out there that uses the bumpers. But most kids will struggle to roll a 10-pound ball with any accuracy at all. And because of that, someone came up with bumpers. That's Jesus' point here in verse 5. Marriage, he says, is supposed to be indissoluble, permanent. But humanity is hard-hearted. It is because of sin that divorce exists. It is because of sin. The evidence of that is clear from the moment that sin came into the world. When Adam and Eve fell to temptation and rejected God's good rule, their union as husband and wife was threatened. After they disobeyed God and he came and confronted them about it, Adam does everything he can to avoid the blame. He says, the woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So you can see, God, this isn't really my fault. It's her fault. And maybe it's your fault because you put her here. It's a laughably bad defense because only Adam was there when God gave the command not to eat from the tree. Only Adam was there. Eve had not even been created at that point. And then, when the serpent comes to tempt Eve to disobey God, the text tells us that Adam was standing right there. But for fear of himself, he is willing to throw his wife directly under the bus, or at least to try to. Sin hardens it hardened his heart. It made him selfish. It shifted his loyalty to himself and away from her. It drove a wedge between the first husband and wife, and it's been that way ever since. So the Mosaic law includes a provision for divorce. Not because it is God's will, but because people are so incapable of upholding his will. And that is not what the Pharisees were expecting to hear. Because rather than giving them a ruling, an answer to their question, he basically tells them that they are all wrong. He says that a husband and wife have been made one flesh by God, and that severing that union is not something that we have the authority to do. That in God's kingdom, divorce is simply not on the table. His answer is so shocking to everyone listening that in a parallel account of this scene in Matthew's gospel, the disciples respond to Jesus by saying, if that's the case, Jesus, then it's better not to get married at all. They're baffled by Jesus's answer and the rigidity with which he answers their question about divorce, because they were used to the idea, just like many of us are, that we should think about marriage the way that we think about owning a car. The day that you get it and drive it off the lot, we're smitten like a bride and groom on the day of the wedding. And then there's a honeymoon phase where every time you get behind the wheel, you feel a thrill. You keep it meticulously clean, and under no circumstances is anyone allowed to eat in your car and get their crumbs in the seat. But time wears on. Stuff starts to wear out. You go to the Cape with your kids one time, and you bring half the beach home in the back seat. Things break. Maintenance expenses begin to pile up. You try to hold it together, but typically at some point, the car just isn't worth the trouble anymore. And at that point, the wisdom says it's better to move on than to be stuck with this clunker. 
But now, here is Jesus saying, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This is a covenant that only God can bring to an end, and everything else is hardness of heart. Now, it's important to pause for a moment here and acknowledge a couple of things. The first is that Scripture does outline a couple of specific scenarios that permit a husband or wife to consider divorce. The first is in Matthew's parallel account of this same interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Matthew records Jesus saying that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So in cases where some act of sexual sin has taken place, divorce is permitted, according to Jesus in Matthew 19. Not commanded, but permitted. And it takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of prayer to determine on a case-by-case basis what rises to the level of sexual immorality that Jesus is describing here. But the point is that divorce is only permitted in cases of grievous failure. The other part of the New Testament that deals with this is in 1 Corinthians 7. In that passage, Jesus is addressing a group of people who got married before they became Christians. And now, a group This group of people, they're in marriages where one person follows Christ and his teachings about marriage and their spouse does not. And Paul says, if that unbelieving spouse of yours will consent to stay with you, you should stay. But if your unbelieving spouse leaves, then you are not bound to them. And that's it. That's the whole list of biblical permission for divorce. Not, we grew apart. We wanted different things. We couldn't make it work. Because what God has joined together, let no man separate. Secondly, it's important to make clear that there are situations that call for the parting of a husband and wife. In situations of abuse or compulsion to sin, it is not only wise, but also good for a husband and wife to separate. So we acknowledge, along with Jesus, that because of hardness of heart, divorce is necessary at times, permitted in others. But even in those situations, divorce represents the tragic loss of one of God's most wonderful gifts, that marriage ought to be a lens through which we see him more clearly. This is not the way that things should be. It is not what God has designed. Any divorce, whether biblically justified or not, is a violation of God's good designs for our flourishing and for his glory to be revealed. That's a hard word in our day and age, isn't it? Just as it was in the first century. At the end of the scene, the disciples go to Jesus looking for an explanation. It's like they're saying, Jesus... (laughs) We know you didn't mean all that back there, right? That was just some tough talk for the Pharisees, right? But Jesus doubles down. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And that's his final word on the subject. There is no equivocation, no softening the blow. And as extreme as that sounded to the disciples, it is no less so in 21st century Massachusetts. 
The statistics on divorce in America don't come as much of a surprise to us. Almost half of all marriages end in divorce. The rate for second and third marriages is much, much worse. But something that has surprised researchers is that the divorce rate seems to have peaked around the year 2000. For the last two decades, it has steadily declined to its lowest point in 50 years. And that sounds great, doesn't it? But it isn't because husbands and wives across the nation have suddenly figured out the secret of success. It's because the marriage rate has also been steadily declining. For men and women who can frankly have the experience of getting, getting or the experience of married life without the formal commitment, the idea of actually getting married has lost a lot of its appeal. For a lot of people, it isn't worth the trouble or the risk. So even if divorce rates are at a historic low, that's because the view of marriage in our society is also at a historic low. And unfortunately, that is all also true of people who identify as Christians, who claim the highest respect for the institution of marriage, but who also have a divorce rate almost as high as the general population. Admittedly, it's a little bit better. The picture is a little bit better for folks who are committed, practicing Christians, who are engaged in local church life, but the fact that the number isn't zero is the problem. So our situation isn't too dissimilar from the one going on in first century Judea. When divorce was common, people's regard for the institution itself was diminished, and people argued over what exactly constituted a reasonable case to walk away from the thing entirely. And into that ongoing debate, Jesus says, you're all wrong about this. What God has made, let no man destroy. I know that there are people in this room who have endured the heartbreak of divorce and who still bear the scars of that experience. And certainly as we look to share the gospel with our friends and neighbors, we know that many of them have walked that path as well and bear the same scars. And this word from Jesus can be a hard one to hear. So there are a couple of other things that we should say clearly at this point. The first is that divorce is not unforgivable. It is serious. It is not what God intends or desires. It is a violation of God's good design for our flourishing, but the mercy of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover our failures. When we look to him, confess our need for grace and trust him to meet us in that need, our sin is atoned for and God regards it no more. So for brothers and sisters in this room who have experienced divorce, know that Jesus Christ and his mercy is enough for you. He raises those who are dead in their trespasses, according to Ephesians 2. He sets prisoners free from guilt and from condemnation. And for all of us who know our need of him, he gives mercy freely. For those in the room who are married, who perhaps have healthy, thriving relationships with your husband or wife. Know that it is not because you have it all figured out. Every one of us is as hard-hearted in our sinful nature as the person next to us is, and it is only by God's gracious provision that we have not carried out the full extent of our ability to sin. It is a mark of his kindness to you. It is a mark of his kindness to you that your spouse is as patient and long-suffering with you as they are in spite of your hard-heartedness. So even though I think that there are a couple of important applications to draw from this passage, I want to be clear here that 
It is neither to be crushed by guilt or to be puffed up with pride. Instead, I think Jesus' teaching on marriage helps all of us. Whether you've been married, you are married, or you've never been married before, because he helps us, all of us, to think about marriage differently than what we've been trained to think about it. Because we shouldn't think about it in terms of a cost-benefit analysis, but instead as something holy and set apart by God for God's good and gracious purposes in our lives and in the world to reveal something about himself. It is a challenge to think this way because we are surrounded by the idea that marriage exists in our lives to make us happy and that the moment it fails, it's end of the bargain to, to make us happy that we should walk away from it. The moment that it fails to keep up its end of the deal to make us happy, we should walk away. Instead, Scripture helps us see that marriage is first and foremost to make us holy. And if it makes us happy too, it will be chiefly because grace has informed our understanding of what it means to love and be loved by our spouse. Marriage is to make us holy first and foremost. It is to help us behold God and His righteousness and the love and sacrifice of His Son for the church. It will be, if, holy, if marriage makes us happy, it will be because we know what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ, who give of ourselves rather than using others to prop ourselves up, who lay our lives down for others as Christ has laid down his life for us. Marriage may not be a grueling, perilous, life-threatening journey through dark and icy waters like Ernest Shackleton was recruiting people to do. But every married person in this room knows that even the healthiest marriage is beset with trouble because we bring our sin into the union that God establishes between us and our spouse. So marriage makes us holy, first and foremost. And one of the ways it does that is by helping us to see how hard-hearted we really are. To see how hard it is to live selflessly, to give sacrificially, to love someone other than ourselves most of all, and to uphold a covenant that at times seems like an impossible commitment. So the question isn't, when should divorce be allowed? But what does it say about us that divorce exists in the first place? Why is it so hard to live according to what God revealed about marriage in Genesis 1 and 2? For the disciples... This is a hard word. But when we are confronted with our sin, with our hard-heartedness, and we turn toward Jesus, who deserved all honor and glory, but chose instead to empty himself and take the form of a servant being, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In all of life, and especially in marriage, may we be people who follow Jesus in this way. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider Jesus' teaching on marriage this morning, and how through marriage he helps us to see what it means to truly follow him, please work in us to bring about your will to humble us and make us true disciples who give of ourselves rather than take, who sacrifice because that is what Jesus has done for us. For those who are married, I pray that you would sustain those unions by grace. For those who are 
who have experienced divorce, I pray for grace. And for those who've never been married, I pray that you would give such a high view of marriage that your glory is revealed in the very idea. We pray all these things in hope, Lord, and in the name of your Son. Amen.